This is an ABC podcast. This is The Conversation Hour with Rochelle Hunt on ABC Radio Melbourne and Victoria. What connection does town planning have with our health? Can how your suburb or town is designed have a direct correlation with diabetes, heart disease or obesity? And where on the list of importance are we, are human beings? Where are we placed when we're designing our cities and suburbs? According to the World Health Organisation, healthy urban planning is about planning for people. It means putting the needs of us, people and communities at the heart of the urban planning process and considering the implications of decisions for human health and our well-being. It also means finding the right balance between social, environmental and economic pressures. So when you think about all of those elements and where you live, do you live in a healthy area? Do you have access to green space? Can you walk to the shops or public transport? What services are you crying out for? What food outlets do you have available? Is where you live making you sick making you healthy. This is the Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt and your co-host today, Dr. Sandro DiMeo, of course, CEO of Vic Health. Sandro, this show would be impossible to do without you. And it's something that we touched on a little while ago when we had the pleasure of Magda with us in the mm. studio. And we started talking about the idea of how town planning affects our health. Mm. And when you sort of throw that out there. It's huge. But how can urban planners determine whether or not I get diabetes? Yeah, well, when you first look at it, I mean, you think, well, what could possibly be the link between the built environment around us, uh, where our streets are, how big or what kind of house we're in, um, and what our neighbourhood looks like and our own personal health. But actually, the links are deep and uh, really important about 55% of the global population now lives in a city. That's expected to rise to about 70% by 2050. So seven in 10 people across the planet will live in cities by mid-century. And increasingly, we're facing a, a, a an, an enormous burden of what we call chronic disease. So one in two Australians live with chronic disease. Uh, this is diabetes, heart disease, cancers, it's it's linked all of these diseases are heavily linked to the air around us the quality of the air uh, access to places to be able to get physically active and move act, access to public transports so we don't have to use our cars and really importantly access to fresh food uh, and where possible the absence of or at least more fresh food than junk food, junk food. and that balance but the reality for most Victorians and, and many Victorians and Australians uh, is actually that we live in environments, live in suburbs that are making us, on balance, uh, less healthy. I guess it comes down to the idea of the 20-minute city, doesn't mm. it? That you should be able to walk to everything that you need to access, whether it be medical care, food, school, public transport, potentially even your work mm. within 20 minutes. How close to achieving that will we ever be, do you think? <laughs> Well, we're we're a long way, and and the reasons are kind of varied. So we we have as a nation always loved this idea of a quarter acre block, the large you know backyard, and and while that's starting to change, and particularly generational shifts are starting to change, uh, we still do have a very big focus on you know land, and and for for obvious reasons, and it's probably um, you know deeply ingrained in our cultures in many ways. But there are other countries around the world that have taken a different path, mm. you know, that have focused instead on medium density design, uh, you know, centering populations around public transport, and most importantly, building cities for people, not for cars, building cities around, you know, access to things like healthy food, hubs of employment and public transport, rather than building cities and then working out how we you know, fix all of the problems. That's right. And the fact is we are building cities, aren't we? We're building all these little micro cities as we push out further and further and as that connection between city and country becomes a blur and peri-urban farming and peri-urban building is there. So do you put in first a footy oval or do you put in McDonald's? Like what comes in <laughs> first when we're building these little micro cities all around Victoria mm. 
who are we building for? Is it profit or people? Well, that's right. And, and I don't think it's necessarily one or the other, but but certainly, you know, I'm the CEO of Vic Health, so clearly, and, I'm a, and I'm a medical doctor, so you know what I'm going to say, Rochelle. But, you know, clearly I'd like to see the starting point is the are the green spaces, are parks. Uh, you know, it, it blows my mind that we live in a country where, you know, the laws are such that you're not allowed to put a pharmacy within a certain distance of another pharmacy, and yet you can have as many junk food outlets in a row as you want. You're allowed to put junk food outlets in small country towns that don't want them, near schools and places where kids play. I mean, all of these things surely make it harder for families and and particularly our young people to to Mm. be healthy. And there are ways that we can, uh, you know, fix that. one three hundred triple two seven seven four. Dr Sandro DeMeo is with you, CEO of Vic Health. We're looking at where you live and whether or not you think it's making you healthy or if it's making you sick. Do you have access to everything that you need in order to lead a healthy life? Green space, healthy food, public transport. Josh is in Eltham. Hi, Josh. Hi, how are you going? Well, what did you want to say? Oh, I um, used to work as a civil engineer in land department. Um, and I think the planners often do a really good job, but um, trees aren't actually given enough emphasis from in the engineering process. Like they need to be considered an asset because otherwise they just get shoved to the side because you need to fit in. Everything goes underground now, the gas, the electricity, the telco line, and then all these um, individual owners of these assets go, you're not allowed to have a tree there because we need to fit all of our services. So councils need to be more... Uh, strict on saying no trees have to go in mm. and right from the beginning of the engineering process they need this clearance as well as the gas plant. So like, as a town planner Josh where do people come in to your planning at what sort of how far down the run of importance do human beings come into your planning? Sorry, I missed part of that. I'm That's all right, Josh. I thought that was a very timely pause there, by <laughs> thinking, the way. Thinking. Big thinking. <laughs> Look, as a town planner, where do people, like, so where do we as human beings, where do we come into your list of priorities when it comes to planning a, a new suburb or town or city? Well, I wasn't a planner. I was an engineer. Um, however, at the engineering process, uh, I think you've just Unless the council's really pushing for it, it's right at the bottom of the list when you're doing a detailed design. You're just trying to get everything approved by council so um, and all the other authorities. So Gosh. if trees aren't on that list of who you need to get approval from, then it's, it's, a, it's a nice to have. That's not what we want to hear, no. Sandro, is it? And I remember Dr Greg Moore speaking with Jacinta Parsons talking about even putting trees on your route to public transport mm. so that if you've got a 5, 10, 15, even 20-minute walk, we're all up for a walk. But if that walk is unpleasant, if you're going to get sunburnt, if you're not going to have any shelter in any way, shape or form, then you're possibly not going to do that walk. So even where we put trees determines whether or not we get in our car. Mm, yeah, and there are so many health benefits more broadly of of, of trees, of green space. Um, as you mentioned, it, it increases traffic, which improves safety and security. Um, so, in fact, there's a you know there's a link between uh, having more trees and decreased crime uh, because people are more likely to enjoy the space, use the space, stay (laughs) in the space. There are all sorts of flow-on benefits of of green space and of of including, um, you know, trees. But but I think it's also about when we're building, very hard to replace trees. takes a long time for these trees to establish and to get the health and social benefits from those trees. So we also need to be thinking about when we're, you know, expanding or developing suburbs, how do we preserve the natural assets that we have because by the time that hundred-year-old tree that we yeah. pull, you know pull down grows brand, grows back, uh, well, I'll probably be long gone, and and you know the benefits are lost in the meantime. Dr. Jonathan Spear is the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. Jonathan, are we building for people or are we building for profit? Well, it's a great that's a great question, and it's great to be part of this conversation. The reality is that infrastructure and planning should be built for. You know, the benefit of people, of course, a thriving economy, but also a sustainable environment. And increasingly, the way we and governments are thinking is to try to achieve all three of those things. As Sandro said, we've got a long way to go. Um, but we know what 
we know what works. And so part of the challenge we have now is implementing that. So we know that there is a really strong connection between people's travel choices and their health. You've just been talking about the importance of tree canopy cover and green space, which we certainly think about as infrastructure. And so there's a recognition of that being something that we need to retain and build more. And also it's both the established areas of our cities where we can make more use of the infrastructure and good planning we've had in the past, as well as doing better in new suburbs. Jonathan, I guess we all know these, don't we? When you break it down, it all makes absolute sense. So as your role as the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria, how easy is it for you to implement this when we have so many different parties involved, whether it be both public and private? There's a lot of money at stake when we're talking about big development, when we're talking about housing developments as well. Do you feel like you have the control that you need? Well, Infrastructure Victoria is the independent advisor to the Victorian government and the Victorian parliament. So we don't have control. We we give um, evidence-based research and advice that also has involved talking to lots of members of the community and other stakeholders. So when we give that advice to the government, they know that sitting behind that is that mm. quality of evidence analysis. There is an increasing recognition by governments, you know, all around the world, and, and both state and local governments, that um, we can do better and need to do better for both existing and, and growing communities. The challenge is the scale of the task, because yeah. again, as you were talking about before, we've got um, you know a, a number of decades where this hasn't been as much of a focus. Um, it's becoming one now, and that's really promising. But we're good with the scale of the task to make sure that. Uh, the cities that we live in now and in the future can accommodate the growing populations and and deal with some of those health challenges that Sandra was talking about. It's a really large scale task that we really need to be focused on. Jonathan, we, we often um, get referred to as one of the world's most livable cities. Mm. But, but I mean, how well are we doing on the global stage? Because we're, we're also one of the most ur- so urban sprawled cities in the world. H- how do we compare to other similar cities in terms of building you know, for health and, and for, for kind of social benefits? Yeah, well, the, the world's most livable city perhaps depends where in the city you live. Yeah. And if you look at our research or work that the Committee for Melbourne have done, there's a bit of a tale of two cities. Mm. Some areas of Melbourne where it's very livable, there's good access to a lot of the infrastructure, both green infrastructure and transport, uh, and and also social infrastructure, things like swimming pools and libraries that, uh, are, that are some of the fundamentals to a really healthy life. Then when you get to some of the, the newer growth areas of Melbourne, that is less the case where there's less good access to transport, yeah. um, less green space. And what our research found was actually some of the most important bits of infrastructure that growing communities in Melbourne's west and north need is more aquatic centres and more libraries. That's what growing communities need to be livable and healthy. It's interesting. There's a text here that says, uh, green face town planning is a little bit like traffic management, two of the greatest oxymorons that ever exist. No property development nowadays requires big open spaces. There's no such thing as a Faulkner Park or a Royal Mm. Park or a Carlton Gardens in these particular suburbs. That's the reason why we have issues with weight, obesity, all of those factors, all areas where people can walk in comfort but now in new housing developments, all we do is put in a swamp with a mosquito-riddled little bit of water and say that they can walk around that. Jonathan, stay with us because Michael's called in from South Melbourne. You're a town planner, Michael. Where are we going wrong, do you think? Uh, I think we have a whole heap of issues. I think um, becoming a town planner has made me realise how problematic um, sort of the future is for Melburnians, especially young Melburnians. Um, what I'm looking at as a, in my mid-20s is the prospect of having to possibly buy into an area that, yes, it might be cheap, but where is the service provision? Where's humanity provision? Um, there's no public open space. If there is, then all these stores, all these shopping centres, as Sandra mentioned before, um, they're ages away. We're car dependent in these in these yeah. areas as well. Um, and more and more, um, I think one of the big things as well is in the established middle suburb, we have this complete lack of 
innovation to create medium density or high density apartment living, which in a city of 5 million people nearly, we're about to be Australia's largest city. I think that's a stain really on where we're going um, in terms of, you know, growing our city, as, as you yeah. mentioned, the most livable well, city Well, Michael, well. I just and, wrote down the word yeah. innovation and <laughs> underlined it multiple times. And Sandro, that was something that we, we touched on before as well. But Michael sort of spoke and mentioned Melbourne there a few mm. times. But I would push back that this is not just an issue for inner city Melbourne. We're seeing these outer suburbs and outer cities in our regional parts of Victoria as well, so sub-cities of Geelong and Ballarat and Bendigo and you name it, where it still might be a 5K, 10K walk to the closest fresh food outlet. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I wanted to ask, you know, Michael, you a question actually as a as a, um, as a des- urban designer. I mean, some research we recently did looked at St Kilda versus some of the new outer suburbs and it found that in St Kilda the average distance to a fresh food outlet was 400 metres. In some new uh, developments it was 14 and a half kilometres. So if you think about you've got to get in a car to be able to get fresh food, you've got to have a car, uh, you can't walk there, kids can't easily pop down to the shops. All of the flow on ben- you know, benefits of having it nearby are being lost. I mean, what are there any restrictions or expectations on new developments to have access to fresh food or to have access to, to healthy food options? Well, look, I, I, I think it's also in my past employment as well. I've worked in the service industry in um, sort of water and gas, and I've had to visit these areas. And um, the the first thing that I, I always see is that their local cafe or local um, area, uh, sorry, local sort of health food stores. It's it's Seven Eleven, it's um, servo stations, it's um, it is McDonald's. Yes, they have salads and everything, but you know um, that's that's mm. not the greatest thing. I think I think also worth mentioning. City of Casey um, in Victoria has one of the um, uh, how do you say the the hardest or the high the greatest um, inaccessibility to fresh food. Fresh food, and yeah. that's just Nary Warren. That's um, and those areas such as that, and and, and it's one of the fastest growing areas as well. Exactly. Yeah, and it's not like they were developed yesterday. They've been yeah, they've right. been there for. Mm. Decades, twenty years, ten years. So I think, and and you look at Mickleham, um, those areas are very new um, and they're up and coming, and a lot of people buying into there. But there's just no services. But there's do you, nothing there. I mean, do you think though, are, are these services like a fresh food options just going to come? I mean, for, you've got this two and a half well, times as many junk food outlets in in newer or lower income neighbourhoods versus more established and rich neighbourhoods. We know that. The data is there, two and a half times as many into, you know, mm. per square kilometre. The the challenge is not solving itself. I mean, do, do we need to actually put things into the planning regulations or are there things in the planning regulations that, that require communities that are being built to have access to fresh food options, not just fast food outlets? Oh, of course, I think I think the in terms of the development um, with developers, they they very much um, want to have those things, and it's a desirable option, and it's put in pamphlets and brochures, um, and people buy into that, expecting that. Um, whether or not, mm-hmm. I, I'm not too sure about the urban economics side of it, um, and that's a whole different field, but whether or not that's actually provided for once they actually start construction. And um, I know, and Michael, you said then... to get in the regulations, yeah. yeah. That's right. I mean, you say what people are expecting. There's a text here from Sue and Q saying, my son bought land five years ago in a brand new development. They promoted it on the master plan with the shopping centre, parklands, community hub, etc. But that land is still far from being built after my son's been living there now for almost two years. The estate has only one entry, one exit. There are thousands of homes in that estate. So it takes over an hour to leave there in the morning. There's nothing for kilometres in the way of shops, only fast food takeaway change. So my assumption is it's all about profit. Otherwise, they would have built a supermarket. So just finally, Dr. Jonathan Spear, I mean, why aren't supermarkets... Is Sue right? Like, why haven't they built a supermarket in some of these estates? And when we talk about some of the other bigger estates that Michael just mentioned, they're not new. They've been around for around a decade. Yeah, well, I think the reality is that on the master planning for a lot of these new areas, there is a designated activity centre for you know commercial use, and eventually you do get 
things like supermarkets, but it's the delay that that Michael's just been describing mm. and that we hear that a lot from people in these growing communities as well. And there is a, definitely a difference between what people expect and what they experience, especially in the early years of people moving into these to growth areas. So uh, the other thing I would like to touch on in terms of what Michael was saying you, you called before was he, he mentioned... The, the established areas of Melbourne and greater density in the established areas of Melbourne. And that's something we have done a lot of work on as well, doing modelling and research about the benefits of having more people live in established areas of Melbourne where there is good infrastructure, there's also access to fresh food and so forth. And that has very um, significant benefits for people's health. Now, people should have a choice about where they want where they want to live but we've identified that if there are um, planning settings are changed to enable more medium density development in established areas of melbourne that'll achieve a lot of things including addressing some of these health challenges that we're experiencing but we've also got to give good infrastructure for these new growing yeah. communities. And, yeah. and, and and so part of it is about the fresh food that the centre has been talking about. It's the swimming pools and the libraries. The parks. It's re, it's parks. It's it's um we've recommended that these new areas that are developing Melbourne have a target of thirty percent tree canopy coverage. And what's and it currently sitting at? Same question. <laughs> really, really low. So it's it's like under five? Yeah, it's between it's below ten percent in many of uh, in the in the west and the north and Melbourne, and, and the same goes to, for some of the growing areas of our regional cities. So, and and the Victorian Planning Authority has put that target into their guidelines for new uh, development. So that's really good. Develop really good. And you those know, guidelines have to, have to be adhered to. Yeah, target in a guideline that makes me nervous. Yeah. So what does that <laughs> well, mean? Then, well, therefore, so then it's the implementation of that through mm. the planning provisions and the planning permits that occur. So that's important. The other, the other piece is we released work earlier this week about Melbourne's buses. Yeah. And what that shows us is that um, many of the growing areas of Melbourne don't have very frequent or fast bus connections. And the more and earlier bus connections there are, the less car reliance people have. And we have and a fleet of electric buses can... now as well. And anyone that's waited for a bus in Melbourne is throwing their hands up in the air, Jonathan, as you talk about that. We're going to dive into public transport a little later with Marion Tyrrell from the Grattan Institute. So, Jonathan, we might leave it there because we have a full board of calls that we want to get through, but it's been fascinating speaking with you about your research. Thanks for your time. Mm. That's a pleasure. Dr. Jonathan Spears, the CEO of Infrastructure Victoria. Dr. Sandro DeMayo is your co-host this morning on The Conversation Hour. Good morning. My name's Rochelle Hunt. This text says, what about the fact that maybe these areas are cheaper to buy in because they are so poorly serviced? And that's a fact, Sandro, isn't it? It's cheaper. You can buy land and home packages for three, four, $500,000 when the median price of a house closer to the city is pushing up closer to a million bucks. So it's more affordable to be able to have a family but it's that ongoing cost, isn't it, of petrol, of the health costs mm. that it's costing the entire state as well. That's right. And, and it's the delay that Jonathan talks about. Eventually, you'll have enough people that a supermarket may open. But what happens in the 10 or 20 years in the meantime? Uh, the same with, you know, canopy cover or, or um, green space. And so, you know, that is where traditionally governments do need to step in. We don't just kind of wait for enough people before we build a freeway. We don't wait for enough people before we build the road to the... Uh, to the to the new development, like we should also think about, well, how do we incentivise or even bake it into, yeah. you know, the expectations that if you're going to build new dwellings and sell new dwellings, that it needs to come with access to some of these services and and um, yeah. you know that's an expectation. I agree with Mary who says on text as a Melbourne-based architect, this discussion's been happening in my circle for decades. Mm. We know how to solve these issues. It takes prioritising people and how they use spaces rather than developers' bottom line. Daryl's been waiting patiently in Pakenham. G'day, Daryl. Yeah, g'day. As it turns out, I've gone from living in the inner suburbs to living in the city of Casey. And you can smell the difference in the air because of the pollution. Mm. Now, as far as the Casey shopping centres and the, and the facilities there, 
I think that they're marvellous. First of all, you don't have to pay for parking. And uh, you've got Fountain Gate that's being developed there. You've got magnificent private schools out that way. You've got Halebury, uh, Beacon Hills College, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I just wish that I'd move there sooner. Uh, they've got magnificent <laughs> It's made you healthy. So you feel like you've got all of the services that you need in the area that you're in in Pakenham Dale? A- absolutely, yes. And you don't... You don't get booked for parking your car. You don't have to fight <laughs> don't say that with the trams. Well. <laughs> uh, they've got magnificent sporting facilities there. And when you walk along the street, people actually say hello. It's, you have to get used to it. Good on you, Daryl. Great to hear from you. So what would you like to see in your area? Do you feel like where you live is making you sick or making you healthy? Are you close to green space? Can you walk to the shops or public transport? And what services are you crying out for? This is the Conversation Hour. Can urban planning have an impact on your health? Rochelle Hunt and Dr Sandro DeMayo with you today. Sandro, when we look at how far out our urban areas stretch now, do we get unhealthier the further out from the CBD we stretch? In general, yes, we do. And in fact, it's a global phenomenon in most high-income countries. So there was a really interesting and kind of frightening piece of research that was done almost a decade ago now looking at the London tube map and they overlaid the tube stations with the uh, life expectancy of the community around that tube station and you can see very clearly as you go out on the tube train line uh, a 20-year life expectancy gap between inner city London and the outer suburbs particularly in the west and you can also see that if you move to the east the life expectancies go up. If you move to the West, the life expectancies go down. And the difference, again, was about 10 years. And there's 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 good evidence that oh very goodness. similar trends... Uh, you just wouldn't get uh, off the uh, train, uh, would you? You'd yeah, that's say, right. I think <laughs> yeah. I'll just go full loop again and get off on a different well, stop. Well, it, show, it shows, though, doesn't it? That the, it's awful. And, and what's interesting is if you move to a new area, you take on the risk of that area. And that, for me, shows that it's not about genetics, it's not about intelligence, it's actually about the environment around you. So if you move from an area that has a, an 85-year life expectancy, within a generation, less than a generation, if you move to an area that has a much lower life expectancy, you will take on the risk and the life expectancy of that new area very quickly, which shows, again, it's about the environment. It's about the way we're building our cities, building our local areas that is either helping us to be healthy or potentially making us sick. And if they're being built for us, if they're being built for human beings. Jesse Hooper is one of Vic Health's future healthy community champions. She was the Glen Ira Young Citizen of the Year and is an advocate for many things, but in particular, getting people to understand and think about infrastructure and how it can impact you in your life. Jesse, a warm welcome to the Conversation Hour. As someone who uses a wheelchair... Is your suburb built for you? Oh, good morning to you both. Um, you know, what a great question. Um, you know, when we go around general footpaths, we try and cross the road. People who walk, you know, I want to say as someone who's only been in the wheelchair for four years, got it a lot easier. You don't have to worry about constant gaps in a footpath, the constant cracks that the government's poorly tried to patch up. This is extremely painful for people who are in a wheelchair to try and go over. Um, currently, there's no guidelines for how big a slope has to be when you know you try the crosswalk walk to try and cross the road. Um, you know, there's all these guidelines that need to start coming into place for people just to be able to cross a road. But you know, there aren't currently so that everyone has the same ability to just walk down the street. It just sounds like a basic human right, doesn't it? And then if you add public transport to that, Jesse, I know we did such an... Actually, it turned out to be a really emotional program here on The Conversation Hour, just looking at how accessible our public transport system is in Victoria for those that are living with any form of disability, whether it be someone like yourself who uses a wheelchair, whether you have some visibility issues, you name it. And it turns out that it's just not, you know, that it makes... It's really, really difficult for you to be able to do the basics, whether it be going to visit friends or going to work on any average day. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. I've had some completely degrading experiences, you know, just starting with a bus. You know, we've done some really amazing work trying to make it more accessible. You know, we've got ramps to try and get us onto the buses for people with a wheelchair. But, you know, 
there has been some deaths because people in the wheelchairs, we just slide around. It doesn't matter how many brakes are holding us on. We've got people just trying to actually hold the wheelchair. Um, but, but now there's been legislation that um, we've got restraints to try and hold the wheelchairs. But this has also meant that we can't actually get bus drivers to actually let us on the buses because it will take too much time. Um, just going on to the trains, we've got the same issue. We can slide up and down a train carriage and this can be a really big issue. We can actually tip out of our chairs just because the trains aren't built for us. Yeah. We've got the train drivers who won't actually let us onto the train due to train time restrictions. Jesse, um, Jesse what? I mean, all, first of all, it's awesome to hear your voice and, and um, <laughs> a declaration, Jesse and I are good friends and it's it's um, fantastic and amazing work that you do as an advocate in this space. But what what can we, I mean, what can we do to be to 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 make it easier and to make it more inclusive and respectful uh, for people of all abilities to to be able to enjoy our urban spaces and 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 particularly our public transport and green spaces. What would you like to see? Look, I think a really big part of it is just being aware. Um, a lot of the time, people are really willing to actually listen, but it's not so much that they want to implement implementation costs a lot of money and we're seeing a really big rise in the money situation throughout our economy at the moment and unfortunately that is being brought on to our living situations Mm. and it's hitting the disability community really badly and and when we talk about how our cities and suburbs are built and how it affects our health so far we've actually been talking about our physical health but that I could imagine if you start to think twice about whether or not you will leave the house mm. and you will socialise or go to work or apply for jobs or whatever it may be because of just how physically restrictive it is it would start to have an impact on your mental health as well Jesse. Oh completely you know basically being told that you have to stay in your room because you can't even access the outside world mm. it's just completely debilitating you know you can't go outside because you can't get a taxi or you can't get around um you can't go on the footpath because you're going to just end up in so much pain for the day it's just absolutely puts an absolute mental strain on you it takes it to that next level doesn't it sandra when we're talking about how we make our cities and suburbs accessible and you almost look at that through an able-bodied lens and then Jesse, thank you so much. You then yeah, you. broaden that lens to think, okay, oh man, we got a lot of work to do. We really do. Jesse, thanks so much for your time. I wish you all the best. Yeah, thanks, Jesse. Thank you so much. See, I'm one of Vic Health's future healthy community champions, and that's it. It affects mm. your mental health. And Jesse mentioned there, you know, the word dignity. And I know when I've spoken about this in the past, you know, wheelchair users, uh, wheelchair users have had to be carried off. The train or the tram, they don't want to be carried off a train or a tram. No. They just want to be able to exit a tram in the way they see see fit. So it ramps about, it up, doesn't it? And it's about, you know, I think Jesse's call to action of we need to think about these things and, and act on them. We don't often look at the, yeah. you know, the world around us. We do. We look at the world around us with able-bodied, you know, eyes in mind. And, um, and, and, and so as we're kind of thinking about, you know, how do we design a healthy city? We need to make sure that it's inclusive for yeah. for people of all abilities. And that means by having a people of all abilities in decision-making processes as well so and that people, people like Jesse <laughs> have a voice. Absolutely. Herbie's in Northcote. Hi, Herbie. Hi, how are you? Well, what did you want to say? All right. You can hear from my voice. I'm not, I wasn't born in Australia. I come from Switzerland. And what, what really bothers me is when you see all these developments happening, uh, even apartments, there's no planning for open space. It's all about how many apartments do I get in per square meter. And so you don't have a garden. You don't have a space for people, for kids to play. Um, I remember uh, um, Fisherman's Bend, the height restriction was removed overnight, but there was no clear requirement for amenities for public transport, schools, etc. Mm. How so do they do the it differently thing- in Switzerland, Herbie? So if you're in town planning and do they do it? I mean, we make lots of references to these Swiss countries that just do things incredibly well. Do they do it better? Probably. I mean, you know, I've been here since 93, so I can't talk what they do now. But I can see that when the apartments are being built, um, 
there's more space. There's more open space. And always you have transport. And I think uh, when I came to Melbourne, um, we, I had a look at the Melbourne then. I didn't know Melbourne, but I knew East is more expensive, West is cheap. Inner is more expensive, the outer is more is cheap. So I looked at where are the train lines, public transport and amenities. So I was lucky at the time that I was able to buy something small. But I think we also carry our own responsibility where we want to buy it. Um, and that comes and down to finance seen. as well, though, Herbie, doesn't it? But I, I love it how a town planner looks at how to access yeah. or, you know, how to <laughs> assess. Gets the map out. I love it. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Makes a lot at, of sense. Looks at services yeah. first yeah. and goes, okay, well, maybe I'll go smaller yep. but live somewhere where I have those services. Lots of town planners are texting in saying we have been banging on Mm. around this for years. At the end of the day, Sandra, does it come down to the government? Well, I think it does, but I think also, you know, Herbie's call there for balance I think is a really important one. No one's saying that, you know, we don't develop, we don't build more houses. Clearly, we, we, we have a housing issue, so we need to build more houses. They need to be affordable, they need to be accessible. But if you're going to you know, overnight remove a height law somewhere, but overnight not at the same time bring in an an, uh, an expectation that there's going to be green space, you know, the market will move us in a direction of, I mean, I can work out, I'm not a developer and I can work out what's going to happen in that, in, in, in that circumstance. You'll end up with lots of tall buildings and no green space because that's what you have allowed and that's how you'll maximise the return from that those investments. So in that that situation, what we need to do is say, look, there's a balance. Yes, you can build higher developments because maybe it's the right space to do that near train lines or it's not going to overlook other people. It's appropriate. But you need to then integrate a a certain percentage of green space. And we know that these these percentages work. In other countries like uh, Denmark and and Sweden, so not Switzerland, but mm. um, they actually have a, a mandated percentage of all apartment buildings needs to be common space. And you think, well, what does that have to do with health? Well, actually, w- research finds that the more common space you have in an apartment building, the more likely you are to bump into someone else, the more likely you, you are to build relationships with those other people in your apartment building. And in fact, less likely there is to be crime in the apartment building because you know have people. you know people you it's have a, a relationship <laughs> you know the same with building green spaces yeah. or or shared gardens in the center of apartment buildings all of these things are working in other countries working well they're balancing medium density affordable housing with things like green space and shared amenity this text from glenn it says what about all of these heat island and the heat island effect of losing trees and tree canopies in these vast estates that would also include the cost of keeping houses cool and keeping houses warm as well. Glenn, you're so right. Associate Professor Melanie Davin is from the Centre of Urban Research at RMIT and the Director of the Australian Urban Observatory. Melanie, you've just done an incredible body of research and Sandra before was talking about a you know the, the train line in the, in the UK on the London Tube and the further out you get, the, the shorter your lifespan becomes. Has your research shown a similar thing here in Victoria? Absolutely, it has, Rochelle. And actually, it was a few years ago now, but we we looked at death rates compared to train lines across Melbourne, and we saw very, very similar results. So it's actually an article in the conversation. People could look it up and have a look. And the fact that that was years ago, Mm. has anything changed? No, it hasn't. And this is really, look, some things we are learning about and we are doing better, but there's a lot of things um, that we could be doing a lot better as well. And I think part of the problem with the system of planning is we're planning in ways that don't really look at the map. We're kind of planning in ways that are thinking about wait for the people to come and then we provide the Mm -hmm. services, particularly in growth areas where it's a real problem. But then, you know, I 100% agree with Herbie. You do see that, yes, we're trying to do more density, which is great for health. It's good because the services are close by, but we're not thinking about the whole urban system. And that's what we're looking at. We're actually mapping that in the Australian Urban Observatory so we can look at the livability 
exactly where those places are so people can actually understand where they want to live as well. And when you talk about the urban system, I mean, what, what, does, that, what does that mean, Mel? Yeah, well, you think about, we, we talk about it as livability. So if you think about a place you want to live, you're going to look for things like public open space. You're looking at affordable and diverse housing. So not just one and two bedroom apartments, but you actually got housing that fits across the lifespan. You're also looking at things like, um, where can I go to school? Where can I learn? Where can I work? Where's the employment? What about shops and services? Do I have to travel a long way to go and actually find someone who can be my GP? Or where, where's the leisure opportunities? Where's arts and culture? But you they, know, but, we have to think about how you access all of those but things. But they seem, they seem so kind of obvious, though. I mean, anyone whether you're a planner yourself or mm. buying, a, buying a house, these are all the things that we would love to have. What, what, what's stopping us? So you've published this article four or five years ago. The UK example was a decade ago. You know, what, what's, what's stopping us? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, what, what's stopping uh, us? What's, what are the major money, hurdles that we, we need to overcome to, to kind of shift the dial on this and not be looking back in another 10 years at the, at the same conversation? Well, I think one of the key things is how we move around the city. Think about transport. We don't think about transport being directly related to health. Now, if you can walk somewhere, if you can ride your bike somewhere, or you can get really frequent, good public transport, one, you don't need a car. Mm. But what we're doing is we're actually kind of putting the houses in and then we think about where we put the rest of it. So what does that mean? It means you have to drive everywhere. So why not if we actually put transport as the heart of thinking about how do we get to things and how do you move around it? I know. It's so frustrating. I mean, we haven't even touched on access to actual health services within this conversation and GPs, and that is a whole other conversation that we have gone into multiple times. Melanie, thanks so much for your time and your insights. No problem. Thanks very much. Associate Professor Melanie Davin there from the Centre of Urban Research mm. at RMIT and the Director of Urban Observatory. Megan's in Ballarat. Morning, Megan. Oh, hi. I hope my reception's okay. Can you hear me? We can hear you perfectly. Oh, okay. Look, I, I have to echo that I agree with a lot of things Melanie said. I'm a great fan of what I call um, walkability. And I was very shocked. I came here 12 years ago and tried to develop. I do up old, unusual, probably derelict buildings and reformat them so they can be used instead of sitting empty. And anyway, I um, was very keen to um, develop this um, huge old big Victorian um, building. And um, there were people in the area, in particular one person, who has made it their goal in life to stop any development and one of the things that was also my building was one situation but another thing that was happening was they were trying to put a supermarket in our area now we all have to get in our cars and drive to another area to go to a supermarket this person has successfully stopped any commercial um anything there's no doctor's surgery there's no clinic there's nothing I mean, walkability and that 20-minute... I mean, you would hate to think that one person has that much power. I mean, I don't want to go into the details of, of who that is for obvious reasons. But, Megan, you raise an interesting point. I mean, this is Ballarat, right? Mm. This is regional Victoria. And if there is not walkability... I mean, we've used the words livability and walkability to be able to have the option of being able to get to whatever service you need within a short period of time without a car... Mm. I just, I just don't think that's possible in multiple parts of Victoria. No. I would say that the majority of Victoria. But I think it also brings up the the challenges in our planning laws, though, too, Rochelle. I mean, if you can, it, there are certain things that need to be kind of non negotiables in in the way we build our cities. People need to have access to fresh food. They need to be able to get access to space to you know walk the dog or play with their kids. They need to be able to access you know public transport, employment. And, and other other things, the, these seem to be kind of the sources of lots of conversation and disagreement. And yet, fast food outlets and you know um, other other things that are maybe less healthy seem to be unstoppable. I mean, the 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 example I use or, or I'm thinking of is um, the case in Tacoma, where you know you've got another really important country town, a community that actually tried to stop a fast food outlet 
um, entering and and establishing in their town, despite thousands of of um, they couldn't. you know people saying, "Hang on, we don't want it," and putting in a petition. They they couldn't stop it, and and for Mansfield to stop the same company from coming into their town, they had to have something like three and a half thousand, you know, signatures. I mean, you, you have to fight so hard on yeah. one hand to keep junk food out, and yet, and these are small country towns, proud country towns that are trying to do the right thing for their families and their kids, and yet. You know, you you can't you can't get the good things in. It, something has to, it has to be something kind of rethought here. And when we add cost of living to this conversation, cost of petrol as well, and also what we know now about how smart it would be as mm. Victorians to be able to move towards electric vehicles and vehicles that are more sustainable for our environment. But a lot of these outer suburbs and a lot of these areas that we're talking about don't have trains. There's no train station, or there's you know there's that. Oh yes, we're going to build a train station, and yet people are still waiting. For train stations and as we mentioned earlier the bus system as infrastructure victoria's report has just released just is not up to scratch and anyone in victoria that has waited for a bus has been late to work or late to an appointment has given up and tried to leg it to a train or to a tram stop so where public transport comes into this conversation marion tyrrell is the grattan institute's transport and cities program director marion when it comes to how healthy our cities and suburbs and towns are how high on the list is public transport? Uh, public transport is a really crucial part of the mix. Um, it, it is important, but it's it's kind of interesting to see some of the changes that are happening with public transport. And so Infrastructure Victoria's report on buses was very interesting because buses are such a flexible form of public transport. They can come on stream really quickly. But I, I think a lot of what Victoria is investing in at the moment is heavy rail and um, while that, that's great for getting people over larger distances en masse, um, it does take an awful long time to come on stream. So some of the future-oriented solutions are going to be, are going to include things like walking, cycling, other micro-mobility like scooters and so on, partly to do shorter trips and also just to do the last mile um, to connect public transport and make public transport more viable for more people for more trips. There's a text here from Sarah and Morty Alec and it says, 60 years ago when my parents were house hunting, my dad would test the walk from a prospective house to the train station. I did the same thing when buying my small place six years ago. It's essential to a good life. And I love that idea. That's something my pa would have done. Be like, all right, I'm interested in the house, but hang on a sec, just go on for a walk. <laughs> and seeing how far it takes you to walk to the train station. But Marion, that's seen as a luxury yeah. now. It's something that's on on the brochures and once upon a time if you could hear the train from your house it was probably seen as a disincentive but now it's seen as an incentive you need yeah. money to be, live close to public transport well to, to a railway station perhaps but um and, and melbourne is pretty patchy for rail connectivity but that's not the only form of public transport and i think the other thing that's important to realize is that it is if you have a train that you can take to work that can be a wonderful option but uh, we often imagine that most people are congregating in the city, but the reality is that only about 15% of Melbourne's jobs are actually in the CBD, South Bank and Docklands. Most people are actually working all over the city or in country towns, and and jobs are not that concentrated. They're highly dispersed, and and therefore these smaller forms of transport are actually a more flexible option because if you have to fill up a train going anywhere other than the CBD, you mm. don't have to wait a long time to get enough people. And, and that's a real trade-off with the convenience of having frequent services. And Marion, it must have, uh, that, that whole thing around travelling into the city and, you know, I always think about like peak hour is kind of an hour on the freeway in one direction, you know, per day, and then an hour on the freeway in the other direction per day. But, but you know, we're building infrastructure that's there for 24 hours. How has COVID changed that? I mean, has it been an opportunity, you know, with, with working remotely? Are there opportunities in that to maybe more equalise the playing field for people living further out or, or you know, for whom that's a longer distance? Has it been on balance a positive or has it thrown up new challenges? Uh, a bit of both. I think really it's been so interesting because I think what's happened is we've had a very interesting <clears throat> experiment in in people um, having more flexible arrangements. 
And so while most people actually can't work from home, quite a, a you know, significant minority can, somewhere mm. maybe around 40% can. And so a lot of and those people did when they had to, and, and many of them have continued to do so to some extent. But what it does do is it takes the heat out of that peak hour so that it's um, spread more across the week. And, and even um, across the time of day, it does seem to be that employers uh, are more open to flexible arrangements. And you don't need everyone to change their arrangements. It's really just if you if you change 5 or 10% of people's arrangements, yeah. you can really notice the difference. So we are seeing that. I think it remains to be seen what the longer-term path mm, is going to yeah. be. I think we're still, we're not really, I think it would be a brave person at this point who really predicted. <laughs> and then there's the health implications of working mm. from home as well. There's the good and the bad there too. Marion, thanks for your insights. We appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Bye. Marion Tyrrell, Grattan Institute Transport and Cities Program Director. You know, one thing, Sandro, that we haven't touched on, we've been talking about, you know, livability and whether or not our suburbs are making us sick or making us healthy. We've been talking about homes. You know, the focus is on business and small businesses and businesses within our cities and suburbs and towns and how important they are Mm. to our health as well. Mm. Because if they're there, then you have the services, you have successful businesses, you have generations that potentially stay and have work and all of those opportunities and the focus and the support that businesses need needed to run from some of these, you know, either new or established suburbs as well. Yeah, and I I, I do often think we we approach this as sort of a bad news story, but but I actually think there are so many win-wins that we've talked about today, whether it's for small business, whether it's for climate change, whether it's for, you know, families, uh, new families or uh, families that are arriving, like uh, our friend from Switzerland. Um, you know, the benefits to rethinking the way we plan our cities, putting some more, you know, some some clever things in place yeah. to, to to make to rebalance it in the favour of health. Uh, and you to know, put the, more the into actually building the stuff that's on the glossy brochures, you yeah. know? <laughs> and and the delay. <laughs> I think what reality. was really interesting for yeah. me was to reflect on the delay that those things might come, but are there things we can do or government can do to speed it up so you don't move into somewhere and have a supermarket 10 or 15 years later? But maybe there are things we need to do working with the private sector, working with small business to incentivise them to move in sooner. And to hear that text earlier that, you know, there's one exit in, one exit out, when yet there's thousands of homes and it can take... Half an hour or an hour just to get out of your suburb or out of that particular estate. And then you still got to travel to wherever it may be. Are you positive, Sandra, that there will be change? That, that we, that maybe people power will start to say, okay, well, I will move to this estate, but I, I need fresh food and I need a footy oval. I I am, I am optimistic because I think, um, this is a conversation that's not going anywhere. Younger people are really engaged. So it's only going to become more of a conversation as, you know, young people are buying more and more houses and, kind of you know aging <laughs> um, but I also think it's a conversation that government is, is is willing to lean into there was a lot of promise of infrastructure of public transport of other things at the recent election from all sides and that that does give me hope that... Have that you got power, a, Sandro? Can you get in there and tell them to get it done? Well, I'd, I'd like, you know, our planning laws to better integrate health. That would be a great starting point that actually it is something that has to be thought about when we're planning our cities and our streets and our towns. Currently, it's not. Um, I would love to see that and maybe I'll work with Jonathan to make that happen. Dr. Sandro Jameo, as always, thank you so much. Have thank a wonderful Christmas yeah. and New Year. Have a rest <laughs> and, you too, you and too. enjoy thank your you so time. Much. I'll be back with you tomorrow and tomorrow we're looking at whether or not birth control for under 25s should be free. Until then, take care. Speak soon.